0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of The American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. John Darnielle, the creative force behind the band The Mountain Goats, is also a best selling author. Devil House, his third and most recent novel follows true crime writer Gage Chandler, who at the urging of his editor moves into the newly renovated Devil House of Milpitas, California, once an abandoned porn shop and the site of a grisly unsolved double murder on Halloween in 1986. News clippings about the crime point to disaffected teenagers who transformed the old shop into a kind of clubhouse replete with pentagrams, video art, and schlocky monsters. But no arrests were ever made. Gage struggles with the nature of his work and how to tell the story of Devil House fairly. What happens when somebody tells a story that has real people in it? What happens to the story? What happens to the teller? What happens to the people? John Darnielle joins the podcast to talk about Devil House, a novel less about the crime than about the search for truth. Thanks for chatting with me, John, and congratulations on a third extremely metal book title.
1: Thank you so much. (laughs) One tries. (laughs)
0: So this is probably the only true crime novel I've read, where there are passages in Middle English. Yes. Um, And actually, it's probably the only true crime novel I've read, and the only one you've written so far. So where'd the idea to write a novel about a double murder in an old porn shop come from?
1: Here in Durham, things have been changing a lot over the past uh, 15 years, uh, as they have in a lot of cities. It's a very rapidly growing city, right? We moved here in 2003. A couple years later, sometime in the next four years, I was lost and I was driving around and there was what looked like a uh, uh, a business that had gone up overnight that it had a hand painted sign out front that said monster triple x right and it was clearly a porn store but it looked very like it looked like somebody got the idea for it yesterday because they had a lot of dead stock so they opened it that day and hand painted a sign right and and it looked like like a vision from the 70s or something it was just there was something very weird about it because you know that whole world no longer sort of has this sort of foreboding aspect that it once had it's kind of very mainstream now right and so uh but this was very weird it was like and i didn't go in i just drove past and uh and somebody else mentioned it at a party like said did you see the sign that said monster triple (laughs) x it looks dangerous you know next time i drove through the neighborhood uh it wasn't there anymore like i really my theory is literally that somebody got a hold of like 400 dvds and their uncle owned a storefront or something but i was kind of inspired by the hand paintedness of this sign you never see that kind of stuff anymore the whole world's gone legit right and i held it in my mind and then over a decade later i had an office in the former hosiery mill uh, called golden belt uh, that was across the street from the strip of land on which this store had been situated however the buildings that had been on that strip of land had all been raised because we are a developing town, right? So there was no trace of Monster Triple X anymore, right? It was like there was no proof it ever existed except in one picture that a, a local historian had. Uh, so I got really interested in, in the idea of buildings that aren't there anymore and the things that went on inside.
0: It's so interesting that the mood and the inspiration came from north carolina because this feels like a really california novel yeah and i think part of it might be that gage's methods for like evoking the mood of small town california are conventional in some ways you know he bids on ebay ephemera related to the crime he's investigating um and then some of it is really unconventional. Like he restages his refurbished devil house to look like it did 40 years ago by, among other things, installing the same crappy 80s carpet. Right. <laughs> Does this mirror your own methodology for capturing the mood of small town California?
1: No, I, I actually, I, I did, I, there's a fair bit of eBay involved because I, I did buy, um, you know, a map of Milpitas and hung it on the wall and uh, and I got a patch from a, uh, God, what, what what large business was it there? I can't remember. I still have it in a drawer. I, I do like to have sort of fetish objects around, you know, things that I can sort of look at and hold and think this is that. But I don't draw maps and I don't convert the space I live in, except insofar as like objects come to occupy it, you know. Um, but that was just sort of an idea I had of a sort of method acting. I mean, I think it had something to do with the fact that when you read about crimes, you, you sort of feel you feel involved in them in some way. You feel affected by them in some way. And I thought if you wrote about them, you know, that probably would be more profound. but it was kind of a lark. It was just a bit of a creative thing. It's like i I thought when I was writing the character as they drawing up the character, and I was thinking, well, if you have a an author that you're writing, you have to assert that there's something that about their work that sets them apart. You have to sort of be able to justify that they they that they get paid to do it. i mean i I also would be interested by a novel in which like, it was about a writer about whom there was nothing special. <laughs> but, that, but that would be, then the story, I mean, fiction itself sort of posits that something, that either the people in it or the things that happen are in some way special or exceptional. That's sort of an expectation for fiction, right? So I thought, well, what what about, what about my guy is going to be different? And I thought, well, maybe he has a method.
0: <laughs> yeah, he definitely has a method. I mean, there's this great line where he's first describing what he does. He says of a true crime writer ideally you leave as little footprint as possible when you're telling a true crime story your job is to gather the facts of a case and arrange them as vividly as possible somebody else has already done all the dirty work for you arm yourself with some steady work habits and a well-lit workspace and there's really nothing to it just the simple pleasures of research footwork and presentation it's like being a florist
1: (laughs) 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 i'm sorry to laugh at my own stuff i'd forgotten that line (laughs) it's funny it's a
0: great line and i was like what the hell And then you know, not a hundred pages later, he says it would be a disservice to the living and the dead alike to rehash the stories. It would be beneath me, I thought, which was saying something. I haunt dreadful places (laughs) and try to coax ghosts from the walls, and then I sell pictures of the ghosts for money. I mean, does this guy know what he's doing? Does he know what he's writing?
1: Well, I think he's learning. He's growing. You know, he. uh, I mean, here's the thing: when you do your first creative work, uh, you know, for pay you do think a lot less about anything other than they're going to pay me to do this. Right. It's, it's like, as a songwriter, you learn, this is like you learn when you're writing a song, maybe people will hear it. Maybe people will take it seriously. Maybe it will mean something to someone. And this changes your relationship to the craft, right? Uh, you, you, you begin to feel, uh, both the weight of responsibility, but also, you know, uh, The freedom of understanding that, like you know, someone's going to hear this, so it really empowers you. You know, it makes it feel like it matters when you're doing it, which for me is like not a weight, but 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 it's like having growing wings, you know. And uh, so, so I think Gage, during the process of writing Devil House, right, which we see him during it, and then we read some of it and so forth, um, is if not growing, coming to understand uh, the growth that has already taken place in him. Right. Uh, which is also I think that's an interesting thing is that like we don't we don't understand the growing we're doing while we're doing it. We can only evaluate it after it happens. Right. So I think by the time Gage gets to where he gets, the growth has already happened. And we're seeing how it resonates with him to understand that he has changed as a person and his relationship to his craft uh, has altered.
0: How did you get into the mind of a true crime writer? Did you have to listen to a lot of true crime podcasts? Did you read books like. In order to convincingly, I think, question the ethics of true crime, you kind of have to understand the ethics of true crime. Sure.
1: I mean, I'm not that up to speed on recent... I know it's giant now. Uh, When I started writing the book, it wasn't quite as in its moment as it has been over the last year or two. Um, But I mean, as a field, it's been around for a long time. And when I was a young, goth-adjacent, late teenager, like everybody else in sort of my social area you knew about the famous and more obscure serial killers and there was a sort of cultural cachet in having a little extra knowledge in in knowing this or that or having some obscure book about you know peter court the vampire of dusseldorf or whoever you know you could not go online and find out and become an expert by staying up all night reading wikipedia's for these guys you had to know which books to look for and so forth and know where in the library to go and i was one of those guys for a couple of years uh in the, the thing in part seven i talk about this like the narrator of part seven is me, right? And 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 I'm telling the truth that like I was sort of super kind of into that sort of edgy, you know, finding murderers intense thing for several years. Like many people were, you know, metal guys using John Wayne Casey paintings for album covers and stuff like that. Um and at some point I sort of uh and this was a long time ago at some point I thought, yeah you no, know, that's not really cool. Uh and I'm still into death metal and stuff. It's like I like a lot of gory stuff. But the the vibe I started to get from true crime, and I think this is true for a lot of us as we age, you start really being more interested in the victims than you are in, in what makes the killer unique. Gage says at one point, you know, the hero in the true crime book is always the killer, right? So he's the guy you get to, he's your main character. And not just the main character, he is the one you sort of are rooting for to keep going and stuff. And so, so yeah, so I was sort of into it for a little while, the way a lot of young goths are. And then the way a lot of ex-Catholics are, I, I, I became concerned about it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, all of those things are definitely reflected in the novel. I mean, knowing that, though, I am really interested in the fact that there is a real murder included in the book, which, as someone who was not conscious in the 80s, totally flew by me until I started preparing these questions.
1: Oh, you mean the, the 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 River's Edge case?
0: Yeah, the River's Edge case, the real murder of yeah. Marcy Renee Conrad that did actually happen in the real town of Milpitas.
1: Well, and it was a giant deal. I mean, the thing is, when I, I talk about this, and Gage mentions it, too, in, in part one, uh, that like that murder happened, and then Hollywood came and made uh, a movie about. It. Uh, I can't remember who the director was, um, but it was like I think Keanu Reeves' debut.
0: Keanu Reeves, yeah, he right? was in it. He looks really hot in the trailer. I will
1: say. <laughs> and Ione sky was in it, and she was lovely also. Um, but it was a moral panic episode where it was presented as a sort of evidence of of the nihilism of teenagers that they that they had uh, they'd seen their friend's body and nobody had had told, but but then you can go researching on the internet later and find out, well, no, the story that Hollywood told was actually, there was a lot of stuff they changed to, to sort of present a moral arc where one was not actually present. Uh, and I was interested by that because when I first, I read like the, the the story as it was breaking in the 80s. And I'm a pretty, you know, my friend Bill Doreen from the Builders in New Zealand, a, a, band, a first inscription he ever wrote me in a book was I, I believe every story i'm ever told as long as it's being told right and, and i've always been that way i'm reading the story I go, oh yeah this is outrageous these kids how could they not report the thing and then later you say hmm who what does anybody stand to benefit from telling the story in that way right you know what i mean uh and uh, and the answer is usually yes because the more complex your story the harder it is to get people to listen right and the easier your story is uh the easier to just get people to listen. We like heroes and villains, right? And the story, I mean, there is a villain in The Murderer, but he also was an extraordinarily disturbed young man. Uh, you know, it doesn't excuse or justify anything he did, but, but often cases like this turn out to be systemic failures to care for vulnerable people who needed help, you know, and, and those are less glamorous stories, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I really feel for the teens in the River's Edge case, and also in the case of the two murders that animate your book which don't take place in the same town but there are you know overlaps you've got sort of disaffected teenagers you've got the 80s the height of the satanic panic and like this general worry about like the kids these days which hasn't gone away I feel like that never that will never never goes away (laughs) Um, but like what do you why write about this group of kids you know especially given that you know you're not a teenager anymore
1: um, I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's a line from Vonnegut that says, uh, high school is about as close to the core of the American experience as you can get. Right. And I think that's true. I think so much of, of what, uh, of what we do sort of, uh, is in somehow in response to when, when the, the bigness of the world sort of begins to become apparent. Right. Um, I will say, I mean, the, that's the, that's the story Gage is telling the, the book is, it's got a number of other stories, uh, in it, but, uh, I don't know. I I uh I I like I like thinking I like the energy of of kids. They, it's it's easier to or more fun to write their dialogue, you know, uh, than it is to have grown ups saying grown up things and, and uh and and I also liked in this book because we get to meet them again, I liked sort of trying to see what they look like as grown ups, you know. Um and uh but yeah, I mean I do think so much begins uh when we're young you know uh uh so much of of the way we look at the world is sort of shaped by by that and and i also because of the theme you know the way that the world tends to describe younger people often is is a caricature you know uh and uh and and it's weird and, and disrespectful and i'm always wanting to kind of correct that
0: yeah it's a really easy way to like heighten caricature sort of heighten the drama by having it being like they're just children and they committed these murders and they're especially grizzly. Yeah. no,
1: that's, that's, it's all very simple stuff. And like, it's, it's really, uh, yeah. And it's like, it's really, it's really condescending. And I've been sort of, uh, I worked with adolescents and children, uh, when I was a nurse and yeah, people don't often assign agency to younger people. And the thing is, I get it because I'm older, I'm 54. Right. And I know that often when somebody younger is asserting something with a great deal of passion, many of us want to say, look, this question might seem quite different to you when you're older and it's not that I'm smarter than you. It's that when you have just got more more road behind you, questions look more complex than they seemed at first flush, right? But at the same time, it, you know, I think the passion of, of, of youth is, is always inspiring. I think the older you get, the more you go, Ah oh, you know, if I if I had that sort of certainty again. Contemplating youth from the position of age is also poetically always very fascinating.
0: Do you think there's an element of that in your main character, Engage, because he's, you know, he's writing his umpteenth true crime, inhabiting the Devil House, and he's looking back on his first book, The White Witch of Morrow Bay, yeah. and sort of questioning. You know, he he initially is like, well, I, I did it right, like I I tried to do good by everybody, um, but then he starts to question. It seems kind of like a teenager's journey in a way.
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, what's funny, as you were saying that, I thought, well, that's interesting though, because we get to see a fair bit of Gage as a child, right? Uh, and we get to see him as a college student, right? But his teenage years are missing. We don't we don't know anything about those right, uh, from the book, which I find interesting. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, there, there's a, a, a sort of a formative Joan Didion line for me. I think we are well advised to keep on nodding terms with the people we used to be whether we find them attractive company or not. Otherwise, they turn up unannounced and surprise us, come hammering on the mind's door at 4 a.m. of a bad night, and demand to know who deserted them, who betrayed them, who is going to make amends. We forget, all too soon, the things we thought we could never forget. We forget the loves and the betrayals alike. Forget what we whispered, and what we screamed, forget who we were. So I started reading Joe Diddy when I was 16, right? And and these, uh, these are really formative ideas for me. And I remember reading that as I read it and went, oh my God. Because <laughs> it's true, you know, it's especially true for me, having moved from house to house when I was a child, you know, and stuff. You sort of discover that we inhabit these multiple selves, and some of them we like and some of them we don't, right? And I think that's a a big reality of, of growing is sort of to, to realize, you know, uh, I mean, people don't like to say, I was a real piece of shit when I was 25. So, you know, people don't like to say that, uh, uh, people like to imagine that there's sort of a, a, a core that was always good. But I don't think that, I think many, many of us, certainly me, you know, have gone through periods in their lives where they you'd say, what, what a terrible person that was. I'm glad he didn't stay that way, you know? And, uh, and this is one of the things that I think about a lot. I have a song about unicorn tolerance. It's like, you know, when I was my worst self, I remember occasionally catching a glimpse of my childhood self and feeling ashamed. You know, it's like you are betraying that child by becoming a shitty person, you know. And uh, uh, now all, all this is really romantic thinking. This is very words worthy and stuff, right? But uh, I mean, I think about that a lot. I think about how our former selves tend to shape either by forming in a... In a uh, in a sort of predictable way, like by being cruder versions of the more mature version later, but also in a reactive way. You know that 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 it, you may see that you were in a place where you you look back and are embarrassed, and then you and you reflect and go, well, I, "I hope to not be like that. I hope to improve on that." There, there's a lot to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it it doesn't just apply to yourself. You know what Joan Didion says in that quotation could equally be applied to people you write about, and. I think that, you know, to circle back to the quotation from Gage that I read at the top, you know, what happens when somebody tells a story that has real people in it? What happens to the story? What happens to the teller? What happens to the people? Like, comes back to haunt him, too, because what happens to him? You know, what happens to the mother of one of the murdered boys in Morro Bay that he wrote about, who then writes to him? What responsibilities, I guess, and what ethics do you have you know, in writing about real people.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's the big question of the book, uh, and Gage has a has a way of addressing it that is or is not successful depending on your terms, right? Uh, but uh, but I think, I mean, this is this is the problem with stories in the first place, is that they're always going to elide complexities. It's impossible to tell the true story of a person, right? Unless you are that person, right? Uh, that's that's a it's a difficult thing to say because we love books right books are the greatest thing in the world but uh and stories you know we we, we absorb them and we, and we crave them and we desire them right but narratives narrative is not uh without its own ideology uh and it's, it tends to perpetuate itself and to prefer, prefer its own ends right uh but most you know but most people's lives and selves are, are far too complex to actually impose narrative on narrative is an imposition i think almost always right i mean you can say well no that's not true i, I got up and i got in the car and drove to the store and there's your there's your narrative I mean, yeah but this the stuff that went on inside your head <laughs> during all that time is enough to fill volumes right and some authors have played with that too um but uh but once you try to impose a story from the outside you're going to leave stuff out uh and some of that stuff to the person you're talking about may be the most important part or maybe a part that they might, you know, argue would, would, uh, would be a detail that would come to their defense or at least help people to understand their decisions. That's the case. And with Jenna, as you're talking about, is like, you know, uh, she wants to say to the true crime writer, those people only existed for you to write your book, but in my life, they were real, you know? And, uh, and I think, you know, I think that's, uh, that's something worth, worth chewing on. I don't, I don't have a, I'm not here to condemn or damn anybody about it. I just think it's interesting. You
0: know? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of Mountain Goat songs are about storytelling. Devil House is definitely about storytelling. I think your decision to fracture it and tell multiple stories at the same time with time jumps, but also with a lot of shifts is interesting, as is the decision to include some of the oldest sort of narratives, a medieval narrative in there that is yeah. you know, pre- pretty old and straightforward and not avant-garde, <laughs> not metafictional <Right. laughs> really at all.
1: <laughs> well, it is. I mean, it's like, it's, it's there for, for metafictional purposes, but it is just a, a sort of Gowan and the Green Knight style story.
0: Yeah. But it's a straight narrative. And I think yes. I'm, I'm wondering what you think the tension is sort of between having a very linear kind of heroic narrative in there possibly imagined by teenagers. I think it's kind of unclear who is telling that story. Um, it is. <laughs> but having that in there like embedded in the middle of a novel that is also includes extracts from two true crime books that the main character of your fictional novel devil house is writing one of which is also called devil house it's a big contrast right
1: <laughs> so uh so the thing is, I, I wanted to do as good a version of that as I could. And I'd been sort of wanting to do that since college, since Barry Sanders first taught me Chaucer. It's like, I thought, wow, this is a great way of talking. This is a great way of telling stories, you know, because it is, in fact, it's it's straight, but it's, dis, it's discursive, you know. Um, in those stories, there are always long parenthetical asides. And there's a lot more self-awareness than I think... Uh, we tend to think of the past as some simpler junior version of ourselves, like, and we always tend to think that we of the present are the most realized that humanity has gotten so far. I'm never sold on this, although in terms of political progress, I mean, I think it's obvious that the America of 2022, right, there's a lot to recommend it over the America of 1950, like, especially if you're black or if you're a woman, you say, no, please don't send me back to 1950, right, so, but... Uh, but at the same time, I think you know when we say that the past was 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 not as good, it doesn't mean that it wasn't as complex right and and these stories right when Chaucer's writing, Chaucer's stories are not simpler or uh or more linear than ours, though they seem that way right, when you read them but the, the the more you read them, the more you realize well the question of who the narrator is is always present in Chaucer every minute right and uh and so I wanted to do something that did exactly that, where if you read it the first time through, it seems just like a straight narrative, but then you start asking yourself, who wrote it? Why does it cut off in the middle of the sentence? What's the function of this story? Uh, whose, whose story is being told here? Right? And, uh, and uh, how much faith do, do the characters have in their own propositions? How much faith does the narrator have in uh, the story he's telling? All those are present in that little story, but they're very concentrated.
0: Okay, so we've got we've got Chaucer as a definite influence, and these oh, yeah. romantic stories of Gawain and the Green Knight, and these other Welsh and, and British romances. Um, I could also guess at some other meta narrative influences, but
1: well, I, I, throw the throw the guesses at me. It makes more interesting uh, uh, conversation.
0: Pale Fire.
1: Have not read Pale Fire.
0: Tristram Shandy.
1: Yes, yes. Now you're talking. <laughs> now you're talking. Lawrence Stern. Defoe. I love the 18th century. Uh, I mean, although Defoe, um, Defoe stuff is so chaotic. It's really <laughs> amazing. Um, but uh, I love the 18th century because the English novel doesn't yet know what it is. So it's like being at Birdland uh, in the 50s, right? When, when Bebop, the story of Bebop is still being written. And if you go out to see Bebop tonight, you know, in 1953, right, you may see a band play that will never play together in that formation again, literally rewriting the rules of the genre they're inventing, right? Same thing happens in New York during the punk scene in 76, 77. It's like it's it's growing at this crazy seismic pace. Same thing happens in rap in the early 80s where it's like, you know, somebody releases a 12-inch on, on Tuesday, you know, and by next Tuesday everybody is making records differently. Incredibly exciting to be around growth spurts like this. When you're reading 18th-century novels, when you're reading Defoe, right? You're reading a guy who is – he's not writing the rules. There aren't any rules. He just sort of has these ideas about how to write a book. And a lot of these books, like they will – they'll break off to give you a history of something for 20 pages and then come back to their characters, and the characters are so plastic that it can be very inconsistent. And the stories are just chaos, and I really love this. Um, I really love how in older books you have this this lack of a – I mean, you know – Everybody loves to hate on MFA programs and I don't. But uh, uh, but at the same time, I think, you know, once you have whole departments telling you what the the rudiments and basics for writing a story or a book or a poem are, then the chaos goes missing from it. Right. The the, the possibility for for, you know, for giant accidents that work goes missing. And and most of the eighteenth century is 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 not just Stern, it's 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 all all the writers, you know, what's his name? Um Jonathan Wilde was uh, Tom Jones, uh, Fielding, right? Those books are chaotic too. They're they're so weird, you know, and yet they come from a past that we conceive of as qu- as quite normative. You know, we think of those as sort of like stuffy times, but the eighteenth century is not stuffy. It's weird, right? and so, um, so yeah. So that's the experiences I had reading those books, largely when I was um, uh, in college, uh, inform heavily as do the the things I was reading to uh, to get the middle section right. I was reading like um, jeffrey's history of the britons right and um and oh and mallory's mort d'Arthur. i did so much well so much of this book is about that because i did so much digging on arthur and arthurian origins and what you know i mean i say this in part seven is like at the time those legends were supposed to have taken place there were no castles in england i mean that's sort of like it's almost a koan you know so what is the story who's it talking about where did it take place the child answer to that is, well, then it's just not true, right? But that it is true, right? It's just solve for castle. It means something different. It's describing real people, but it's telling different stories. The stories are imports from somebody else's tradition, a uh, French tradition. But uh, but yeah, it's, it's it, to me, it's very interesting the way that the stories sort of reshape themselves over what we know to be the reality on the ground. But what happens right before they seek the grail, they've been having all sorts of, you know, courtly deeds. And Arthur looks around the, the table and says, you know, I I have a kind of a sadness in my heart today because I feel like this is the last time we're going to be together like this, right? And uh, and it's incredibly moving because you know at any given moment of your day, you're in the exact same position, but you usually don't stop to say it, you know? And that's what makes Arthur Arthur is he he, he sort of realizes that this is a moment in time and this moment is passing and we're going into something else. He means about a dozen different things. But one of the things he means is like, now we're going to go seek the grail. We won't be young men killing dragons anymore.
0: We have links in the show notes to John Darnielle's new novel, Devil House, as well as some of my favorite albums from the Mountain Goats, who I saw for the first time when I was 15 and about as impressionable as the poor teens in The Devil House. Also, Thomas Mallory's Mort D'Arthur really is all it's cracked up to be. I started reading it after my interview with the editors of Sword Stone Table, that collection of Arthurian retellings, and surprise, surprise, these classic stories really do hold up. Links to that, River's Edge, and more. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.